Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast and happy Friday. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, obviously, we're going to be talking about what happened last night with the January 6th committee. It was supposed to be the final uh, hearing, but they announced that uh, they were getting so much new information, they were going to be uh, continuing the investigation. And as Liz Cheney closed the session last night, she said, see you in September. So to sort all of this out, and there's a hell of a lot to sort out. Of course, we're joined by Tim Miller because it is Friday. And Tim Miller is in Denver today. So happy Mile High City there, Tim. It is so good to be home, uh, to be here in the Mile High City. I was here last night for a rollicking crowd at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. The air conditioning was broken. But people, it was 100 degrees here in Denver. People braved that. People put the January 6th committee on DVR like I did. Wow. And yet we still had a huge crowd, ton of bulwark people. It was really special. It was this bookstore that I used to, as a kid, go and you know hide in the stacks and sit in the corner and read whatever, basketball books, biographies of Bobby Knight, whatever I was into when I was 12 years old. So yeah. it was, uh, it was, super, it was super special. Denver, it, the crowd was popping. Which bookstore? The Tattered Cover. Okay, well, that's like a legendary bookstore. Legendary, I mean, that's, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's legendary. Okay, so let's start with this. Because, Tim, I don't even know whether we're going to get to everything that we need to get to here. Um, yeah. I mean, we could devote the entire podcast to running Josh Hawley. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I tweeted out almost immediately after that was posted saying this is a meme for the ages. And of course it is. And this is one of those times when when Twitter really steps up and, and, and people within moments were able to you know put uh, a soundtrack to Josh Hawley running away from the protesters <laughs> to chariots of fire. And of course, you know, my, my favorite, you know, the Benny Hill theme and all of that. So we could devote the entire thing to that. But let, let's oh, yeah. say that. Let's save it for later. Okay. We're something save for, it. Okay. All right. Something to look forward to. All right. But uh, before we get in, I, w- I just wanted to start with Liz Cheney's closing remarks because I, you know, once again, I'm sorry if we've heard this before or if I've said this before, but Liz Cheney just continues to just impress. What a remarkable woman. Her clarity and her willingness to go there to just. You know, n- not not gild this up with a lot of emotionalism, but just to, to lay out this case. So let's play the first Liz Cheney cut that we have. Tonight, you saw an American president faced with a stark and unmistakable choice between right and wrong. There was no ambiguity, no nuance. Donald Trump made a purposeful choice to violate his oath of office to ignore the ongoing violence against law enforcement, to threaten our constitutional order. There is no way to excuse that behavior. It was indefensible. And every American must consider this. Can a president who is willing to make the choices Donald Trump made during the violence of January 6th ever be trusted with any position of authority in our great nation again? Boy, that no. cuts right to the heart of the matter, doesn't it, Tim? Liz is just so tough. So we came back and watched this. At a, it's out on DVR late in Denver. I was watching with my husband. He's looking at me, and you know, his is not a. He's a Democrat. This is not a Liz Cheney fan uh, going into this, and he's like, she is just like a dog on the bone. And I said, I said she's going to follow this guy to the gates of hell. Like she's going to do whatever it takes um, to Donald Trump. Uh, I, I think uh, for the rest of her life. I mean, the case is so clear, and we can we can kind of get into yeah. 
the contrast between Liz Cheney and everybody else um, in in the party of cravenness. But uh, the thing that strikes me from that is is that we have we do have a little bit of the split screen this morning, which is the f- answer to her rhetorical question is obviously no. This is not a person <laughs> that can be entrusted with power ever again, and yet. We have a 2024 poll out that has Donald Trump beating Joe Biden right now. 2024 polls, who knows, right? But still, uh, you know, this is a sign. Tens upon tens of millions of people um, are are looking the other way um, uh, over over what what we all are watching last night, and uh, and it's it's pretty horrifying to to imagine. And, and I think that you can't really hold anyone accountable for that except for the fact that there's only to Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's, right? I mean, like, that is really the explanation for this. Uh, it's hard to come up with any other answer. Well, I, I thought one of the interesting things they did last night, with the, the very first witness that they called was Mr. Mitch McConnell from the state of Kentucky. Yeah. And, you know, watching the comments from Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy in real time, and then contrasting it to what they're saying now and what they're doing now is rather stark. Also, Liz Cheney did make a, well, yeah, one more cut here where yeah. she talks about the witnesses and, um, I, and, and, and drags Kevin McCarthy a little bit. In fact, there was a, a lot of pretty good dragging of Kevin McCarthy last night, but this is what she said about the witnesses. The case against Donald Trump in these hearings is not made by witnesses who were his political enemies. It is instead a series of confessions by Donald Trump's own appointees, his own friends, his own campaign officials, people who worked for him for years, and his own family. They have come forward and they have told the American people the truth. And for those of you who seem to think the evidence would be different if Republican leader McCarthy had not withdrawn his nominees from this committee, let me ask you this. Do you really think Bill Barr is such a delicate flower that he would wilt under cross-examination? Pat Cipollone, Eric Hirschman, Jeff Rosen, Richard Donahue, of course they aren't. None of our witnesses are. Yeah, it's, uh, again, she just sort of lays it out here rather starkly. So, you know, and, and again, this is one of the things that I think has been the power, the strength of the of, of the committee is that these are all Republicans. These are all voices coming from inside the House. But as you point out, um, the ability of Republicans to not pay attention to this or not uh, and not, you know, take on board the the implications of this is truly extraordinary. And when I was on a Canadian radio show this morning and I said, you know, of course, you get asked the question, well, will this make a difference? I said, well, why would you think now, given all of the other opportunities they have had to break for this guy, all of the other off ramps, what makes you think that Kevin McCarthy will wake up, stare at the ceiling and say, oh, God, what have I done? Right. I mean, it's just not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. But um, it doesn't mean that we can't have righteous fury about it. I, look, the committee's done a great job as far yeah. as all of these being witnesses that are Trump supporters for the most part, or at least Republicans or conservatives of good standing, uh, almost to a person with very few exceptions. You know, I, I think I have some some nitpicks with some of the witnesses, uh, particularly from last night, which we can get into, Matt Pottinger. But they went out of their way to present a case where the evidence was being put forth entirely by people in Trump's circle, right? And, and not at all by, you know, bulwarky people, right? Um, and so you would think that that might have a, a influence. But here, the, the, the problem is that everyone uh, in the apparatus around them, 
from Fox to the conservative media to all these other members of Congress uh, are are just MIA and, and unwilling to do anything about it. And and here's where we landed. I was working on something on this, but but we are we are really in that old Washington Post quote. What's the downside for humoring them? Everyone else <laughs> except that we're like we're in. What's the downside for humoring them forever? Forever, yeah, right? Forever. Like that's where all these guys are. Like we saw what the downside for humoring him was. We saw the violence at the Capitol. Nine dead and, people. Yeah. yeah, and yet they're all still doing it. And this is just the enraging thing. Last night, I just I don't know how, what was happening. Your emotions as you were yep. watching this, Charlie. Six, maybe six, I was. Six. Maybe I was a little raw nerve, having you know had to mm-hmm. do a book reading in front of my mother. Uh, but I came <laughs> home and I'm just I'm like number one, Donald Trump should be in jail. I don't have any hope that he's going to be in jail, but he should be in jail. And the second about the, that Cipollone yeah. testimony, that's, that was the moment that, uh, that it's like, this man should be in jail. But number two, the other enraging thing is just, like, why is Liz Cheney carrying this burden alone and Adam Kinzinger? Yeah. Like, why? I, I, it's so obvious. It's not a close call. All of these guys knew it, and yet they're playing with fire again for the same exact reason that they did so on January 6th. They want their House majority. They want their Senate majority, and they're worried that if they all would bail on them now, that, that, that the party would fracture and that that wouldn't happen. I don't even know if that's the case, by the way, but that is their logic. They're still in what's the downside for humoring him. They're hoping that he's going to die of a heart attack, um, like in the Leibovich book, that he's just going to disappear, yep. and, 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 and we're... And we're playing with the most dangerous fire imaginable all over again. It's 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 absolutely maddening. And, and by the way, for people who think that that's just, that you know that you're exaggerating there, I, I do think that there, there is that sense among Republicans that okay, uh, this may be bad, but but something will happen to to save us from this. A, a meteor will strike. I mean, he will die of a heart attack. He will uh, choke on a Big Mac. Uh, uh, Merrick Garland will save us from from him. But it won't happen. The great so, Ron DeSantis. The great Ron DeSantis. Okay, so so I I wanted to pick up on on something you dropped there. You know, in, in terms of the culpability of Donald Trump, you mentioned uh, what something Pat Cipollone said that triggered you. Yeah, well, it was what he didn't say. You know, I, to me, I thought the most powerful part of the testimony was accidental by Cipollone. I I've, I don't have a lot of strong feelings for Cipollone. There was the Mick Mulvaney tweet uh, during the during the. Uh, Hearing, so it was like, thank goodness we had Pat Cipollone, people like Pat Cipollone in there. I'm kind of going, are we sure? I, I mean, are, are we sure? I, what, what did he, what did we do? Uh, Donald Trump sat there for three hours and watched TV, and then he put out a terrible video. I was like, well, if, if someone else had been in, in there besides Pat, what, he would have watched TV for four hours, five? Anyway, didn't seem like there was a lot of action items for the good guys with the guns inside the White House um, during January 6th. But anyway, the, the Pat Cipollone moment that really stood out to me was when Liz Cheney asked him, was there anybody in the White House who didn't think that it was incumbent on them to tell people to leave the Capitol and to try to get do everything possible to get people out of the Capitol? And then Cipollone goes on and says, no, I don't, I don't think so. And he starts listing people. And you know, so I know they, I know this person wanted us out and Kaylee, I think even, and he's like, for the most part, I think even Mark Meadows did. And then he starts listing all the people on his staff. We all wanted him out. And then there's like this awkward pause and Adam Schiff comes in and says, well, what about the president? Like, did the president want them out? And then at Pat Cipollone, I mean, I, I don't know how long it actually was, but it, it was felt like two, two minutes. I, he's mm-hmm. like, he's conferring with his lawyer. There, it's quiet. You know, he's hemming and hawing. He sits back in his chair. He leans forward, thinks about what he says, looks at the camera. 
and kind of just shrugs and just says, I, you know, I, I have executive privilege on this. Yeah. And it's like, and that's the president's own lawyer basically saying that, that the president wanted to let the people, the, the violent rioters stay in the Capitol. And this is, to me, that was the moment where I was just, and I've always said, I wish he could be in jail. I don't think it's going to happen. But like, this is jail, right? I mean, this in another, in another setting, this is just the CEO of a company. You know, if this is Eric Prince and it's his little militia, like this is jail. This is also my takeaway from this, that you know, I went in thinking that they were going to document the dereliction of duty, his failure to act. But in the end, it was way worse than that. And our colleague Amanda Carpenter points out, it's just not true that he did nothing. There's a double negative there. But he actually was doing things, including, you know, putting out the tweet about Mike Pence. But I mean, this is why the timeline was valuable. So you have this, you have the timeline, you know, the Capitol Police are fighting for their lives against the rioters. These Secret Service agents uh, who are guarding Mike Pence are, are so in fear for their lives, they're calling their loved ones to say goodbye. Legislators are fleeing for safety, hiding under desks. And the president of the United States is sitting in his dining room and he's refusing all of these pleas to call it off. I mean, for hour after hour, he watches television. He never calls the military, never calls anybody from the National Guard or, or, or any of that. But he did do some things. He's dialing senators, senators, urging them to delay the certification of the vote. And then, of course, at the height of the chaos and the terror, he inflames the mob by sending out that tweet attacking uh, Mike Pence. I mean, really, people should let this all settle in. He didn't call off the mob because the mob was doing exactly what he wanted them to do. They had stopped the certification, and then he decided that he was going to exploit that moment to lobby his allies to execute the coup. And it was only after it was pretty obvious the assault on the Capitol had failed that he bothered to call off the in insurrection and, you know, the... You know, his and you know, as Will Salatin, you know, ish. morning and as well. Ish. Yeah, 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 ish. You know, writes, you know, you really get a sense of, of how much he relished the violence and how reluctant he was. And we saw in that blooper reel that he refuses to say the election's over, even after the violence and after the congressional vote to certify Biden's victory. So, I mean, all of this, it, it is so overwhelming. And this is the enraging part. If it was more ambiguous, Maybe you could say, okay, I can understand how people, you know, might want to, you know, cut him some slack on this. I, I can't. And and so the the acquiescence in Trump becomes more enraging. But I want to ask really you. quick on the blooper reel before you ask me yeah, this specific sure, thing, because sure, sure, before yeah, we yeah. lose it. There was one moment in the blooper reel that really stood out to me. Do you know what it was? Mm. After he, you know, said, I want to take out the election is over line. Yeah. It was a disembodied voice that comes through of Ivanka Trump. Yeah. And, you know, we keep having to hear about how Ivanka was always in there and nudging him to do the right thing. And the voice wasn't to say, no, dad, sorry, daddy, but you got to say the election's over. It was to say, okay, so how about, how about we just do like, now Congress has certified, you know, she offers yeah. some completely other thing. I just got a kick out of the fact that like, you get an Ivanka shank on the side too. And it's like, well, this was a person who's like trying to make it seem like she was, you know, helping nudge things the right direction. But at that key point, nothing. You know, that's fine. <laughs> well, I, I had the sense that you were just listening to somebody nudging a toddler, you know, when you're like, yeah, right. oh, okay, okay, so you can't have the lollipop now, but if you do this, that, that sort <laughs> yeah, of thing. Exactly. Now, so I don't know these guys at all. Uh, maybe you do. And I think this dovetails with what you read about in your book. I was really struck by these text messages between Tim Murtaugh, who's the who was the communications director 
for the Trump re-election campaign. Oh, yeah, and, I know these guys. And, okay, and a guy named Matthew Wolking, who's a campaign spokesman. Now, this is a few days after the attack. And so Murtaugh, again, guy who was the communications director for the Trump re-elect, you know, he's talking about Trump's failure to even acknowledge the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. And he, and he says, you know, it's also shitty not to have even acknowledged the death of the Capitol Police Officer. And Wolking writes back, that is enraging to me. Everything he said about supporting law enforcement was a lie. And then Murtaugh, in this burst of real clarity, you know, about this man that he had devoted his life to support, right, explains the shitty silence about a dead police officer. And he, and he, and let us read you the, this text. He says, you know what, what that is, of course. If he acknowledged the dead cop, he'd be implicitly faulting the mob. And he wouldn't do that because they're his people. And he would be close to acknowledging that what he lit at the rally got out of control. No way he acknowledges something that could ultimately be called his fault. No way. Now, what I wrote this morning was, well, exactly. And it took you this long to realize who Donald Trump really was. So give me the Tim Miller dive into the mind of someone like Tim Murtaugh, who has devoted his life to giving four more years of power to Donald Trump. And yet having this level of understanding of what a shitty, seditious asshole he was. Yeah, I do know these guys. Uh, Tim Murtaugh actually worked with back in 2005. It's completely another world. A campaign of a guy named Jerry Kilgore, very kind of normal, boring Republican mm-hmm. in Virginia. And Matt Wolking is kind of a conservative turd troll. But um, anyway, this text, it reminded me of specifically one person that I wrote out in the book, which was Josh Holmes, who's a McConnell advisor. And um, and this, these texts are happening around the same time. You might not, you might remember this, but mm-hmm. Holmes tweets couple days after that, you know, if you're not in a white hot rage by now, yeah, I don't know what would make you that upset. And I thought that was interesting because the, some people pushed back at me on this. And I said, you know, and they thought it was, you know, angling or, or posturing or whatever. And I said, I don't think so. I, I think that, you know, Murtaugh and Holmes and, and a number of people that worked for Trump were legitimately angry in the days after January 6th, angry that he embarrassed them, angry because say what you want about people that worked for Donald Trump. Most people who got into politics still do have this kind of love of the country and like they got into it for a reason and to see the Capitol stormed and shit on makes them mad. So, you know, it is this kind of combination of genuine emotions plus this career failing and 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 they were mad at him. Like they, they were actually mad at this guy. And so this is what is is happening in these texts. He's like, and then he doesn't even mention the cops. And so there are two questions of this. Like, one, why did they go along with this? Why did they go along with something so obvious all, all that time, which is when you ask. But then the other question, which is, why are all these guys back in his graces right now? I mean, there's you don't see Josh Holmes out there uh, tweeting about how you know Donald Trump should have been convicted. Tim Murtaugh is working for Jason Miller at Getter right now. Matt Wilking's a Twitter troll on behalf of Republican candidates. None of them are tweeting that they were enraged last night. Like, why? And let's throw Brad Parscale in. Parscale, yeah, yeah, well, who was saying this was he was trying to start a civil war and people would die, and he's back totally. He's working for Trump again for the Super Bowl. Yes. Yes. I mean, it literally, the Parscale tweet should be like the paperback introduction to my book. I don't, I don't need to write a new introduction. I just have the tweet where part, where it's like on the one hand, it's Parscale saying Donald Trump's responsible for deaths in a civil war. And then the next tweet is Parscale's running Donald Trump's pack for 2024. 
they are part of this culture, this, you know, what I call the cartel cashers, they're making money, but also the team players, the tribalist trolls, right? They, had to, they, they have, they have uh, their entire identity, their careers is entirely wrapped up in succeeding in this game. And so for a moment after January 6th, they all thought, fuck this guy. We're going to be able to get rid of him. I'm like, he's embarrassed me. He's embarrassed the country and we can just move on to Ron DeSantis or whatever. And we're going to get out of this kind of clean, you know, like we're, we're not officer Sicknick's family. Uh, we can move on. But two weeks later, when they realized that the base, that the conservative media, that their bosses, you know, are all going to come groveling back to Donald Trump, they're faced with the same choice they've been faced with for six years, which is, do I, take off my team jersey? Do I do a whole career shift? Do I change my identity? Or do I just put this in a little box and rationalize it just like I did Charlottesville, just like I did Lafayette Square, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so these guys have you know, contorted themselves in their brains so much that they, that they feel like they've left themselves no choice. I think the analogy I made in the book to Holmes was like, it's like the fit you're in this. Did you watch the show Squid Game? It's so good. No, I didn't. You have to go watch Squid Game. Squid Game is like this death competition. And and anyway, I don't want to do a spoiler, but you're deep. You're so deep in this game that, that, that increasingly every moral sacrifice, you know, becomes necessary because like bailing at this point, the cost becomes too high. And so it makes you very, very upset to read the text. But but what's more maddening is to know that all of these guys are doing the same exact shit they were doing on January 5th right now. Okay, so deep breath, clearing my <clears throat> my throat here, Tim. Yeah. Uh, because you're, you're rather harsh on these guys, but I think you're not harsh enough. Okay, great. Because I'm looking at <laughs> I these love guys, that. listening to your explanation and going, okay, there's Pathetic. lots of, well, these guys are whores. I mean, isn't that ultimately what it comes down to? They are fucking crack whores and they know better, but they're going to do it because this is what a political whore does. Right? I mean, isn't yeah, that? I, look, you know, I think it's, it's yeah. I mean, I don't <laughs> know. I think it's probably worse than that. Yeah, yeah, it's worse yeah. than that. Probably actual, most actual prostitutes okay. like need the money, right? And maybe you're doing it because they need to survive. These guys are whores for fun. Uh, you know, for the rush, for the kick, right? I mean, they don't even, that, these are all privileged, like successful white dudes. Like they could all go fucking be the PR person for Clorox if they want and make 200 grand a year and like have a nice life, you know, like that. Like it's even, yeah, I mean, yes, they are selling themselves like to somebody that they know is that they know is awful. But yeah, it's like, but it's like, yeah. Well, that's why I said crack whore because, you know, <laughs> in, 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 instead of, you know, dealing in cash with, you know, they say <laughs> Okay, in exchange for my committing this humiliating act or with with you, um, we can just give me a little bit more of that dopamine rush of being uh, in the room, of being relevant, of being you know, being a Josh Holmes, you know, you know, troll that that sort of thing. I mean, that, that that's that's the only explanation to come up with because as I read the the Murtaugh analysis, I'm thinking this guy gets it, he sees it very very clearly. But the problem is these people who see it very, very clearly are seeing it very clearly in January 2021. And as you talk about, so what were they not seeing in 2016 and 2017 and 2018 and 2019 throughout the year 2020? And then suddenly it dawns on them, oh, my God, this guy's a fucking monster. 
How did this what, happen? What are they doing in July of 2022? I mean, this is this is the banality of evil, right? This is the Hannah Arendt stuff, right? Like, this is why it's yeah. worse than whores because it's evil. It's evil. Like, it, it is. It is the. It is the person, and it is. You know, obviously, there's some weaknesses to this analogy, but it is the upper management of a autocrat's regime, like rationalizing. You know, we I did my MBS episode this week, right? It's, it's, it's the that. dude that's rationalizing yeah. the bone saw killings. It's like, well, you know, the boss has got to go along with this because the boss can't seem weak, right? I mean, it's evil. It's, it's like the old joke. So if I if it gave you, you know, ten bucks to go along with the bone saw thing, would you do it? Well, that, that would be terrible. What if I what if I gave you uh, ten million dollars? Well, let's talk. You know. Um, was the old, I forget what was the old psychology test about, you know, you're sitting in one room with a button yeah, and like you have a boss telling you to press the button and turn the button higher and higher. And you're yeah. told that someone's in the other room and is getting electric shocked. And mm-hmm. like 60% of the people just, just keep shocking up into the level of the person's death mm-hmm. because you know, they, they keep going on with it. I and mean, it's really more along those lines, right? I, 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 how can you just uh, just think about how how debased of a human? So last night at the book event, people are asking me, uh, and I think this is a question I get a lot, right? Which is like, how can I reconnect with my uncle or friend or whatever that, uh, that like voted for Donald Trump and went along with this? And and you know, and I, the message, the thing I always say in this case is. You know, regular voters like don't you sh- you shouldn't hold every single person mm-hmm. accountable in the same way that we hold Brad Carscale. It's like the people that I'm writing about in this book are people who know better, who right. told us they know better, who said they know better over and over again, who whisper to their friends that they know better to make themselves feel better, and then they go along with it anyway, every step of the way. Fuck those guys to hell. And that is Brad Carcel, right? Like that is the situation. It's like, I know he's responsible for this death. I know he wants to do a civil war. And yet I'm still running a pack again to get him elected again. I mean, that is evil. That is different. Like that is a different category than, you know, Uncle Robbie just like really likes the tweets, you know? Okay, so Um, we're going to have to brainstorm this. Uh, Tim Miller's next book will either be called Worse Than Whores or, (laughs) or Fuck These Guys to Death. What's it going to be? Okay, the latter so, one. The latter one sounds sounds like that's another bestseller. So I don't know. That's that's the leader in the clubhouse. Okay, so Tim, um, the Josh Hawley thing. I mean, this was as as Philip Bump from the Washington Post uh, said. You know, if you ever wondered what it would look like to see a congressional committee say "fuck you" to one of their colleagues, there it is. They ran the Josh Hawley video, yeah. which is a meme for the ages. Now they didn't have to do this. But they chose to do it, and it was like, <laughs> "Wow, this is this gives you an indication of kind of the mood in the room that they're showing. <laughs> what a retromingent hack this guy is! Of all of our colleagues, did you read what Mona Charon wrote about this? I mean, Mona Charon, who was, pro- was probably literally wearing pearls when she wrote this, she goes. You know, the hearings have been a model of dignity and seriousness. You know, there haven't been cheap shots, maudlin appeals, low demagoguery that are all too common. But there was one moment in last night's presentation that brought a moment of schadenfreude. The image of Josh Hawley's disgusting raised fist to the mob, followed by shots of him running for his life. Hawley was the first senator to announce he would object to the certification of electoral college votes. The perfidious coward deserved it. And more frankly... And then she writes, he's a stand-in for all the spineless Republicans who brought us to the brink of a constitutional crisis. So Josh Hawley, 
if the guy actually had any sense of shame, he would realize that he is a national joke today. But I think that's unlikely. Boy, I don't know. He's got to be pretty embarrassed. Firstly, I just yeah, we have okay. to do a slow clap for Elaine Luria because the way <laughs> the way that she just deadpanned it, Beautiful. and I almost I almost needed to to rewind because I forget it was it was a total shank out of nowhere. I was, like, yeah, side I was swipe. like, whoa, no, you yeah. are not. Oh, yeah. my, whoa. Yeah, because it's like she was talking about something, someone fleeing, and it was like, and it was like completely unrelated. And then she just goes, speaking of fleeing, there was Senator Josh Hawley. And it was like, I was like, this is a transition. You know, you have a future in podcasting, ma'am. If you don't, you know, if the congressional seat gets boring, but um, awesome. it was wonderful uh, the way she did it. And, it's important to just think about about who this Josh Hawley is and and to really just appreciate how how phony this all is. I yeah, I wrote about Carrie Lake a few weeks ago about how she's in MAGA drag. Like this is this guy is a MAGA drag queen. And and this is not this is not none of this is real. Okay. This is all just a performative act. The the white power fist, that limp fist that he put up in the air was a was a performative act. Josh Hawley went to Rockhurst Jesuit in Kansas City. Josh Hawley's my age. I'm like, mm -hmm. I know this person. He went to Rockhurst. Okay, he went to the Ivy League. He took a gap year where he went where he where he went and uh, traveled to London, where he went to St. Mark's School on the River Thames. Uh, he went to Stanford. Uh, then, basic you know, the, blue collar yeah. story. You know, man of the people, populist guy. You know? uh, one of my favorite leaked pictures of Josh Hawley. He's wearing a tight t-shirt at a at a at a wine store i'm kind of like looking at the different the different bottles on the top shelf this is not a mega person okay this is not you know one of these proud boys who stormed the capitol um this is a prissy little wuss who thought that he could use you know, the, the, his fake populist fervor to advance his political career, and he and he just isn't quite as good at faking it as as Elise Stefanik, and it's really it's really pretty. I mean, I, I I do think that it will be embarrassing to him forever, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. It might not be embarrassing. I think he's moved his family. They're doing like a little house on the prairie thing in Missouri, um, which is which is which is fine. But um, this is again, he's a Stanford guy. He's a London guy. Um, it's going to be hard for people not to chuckle at him in these rooms where he wishes that he, he could be uh, uh, going forward. There's just something about just watching the bully running that is, you know, <laughs> deep, deeply satisfying. And deeply it's it, well, and then somebody made the point here and I'm just give credit if I remember who it was. But, you know, when he's protected, when he knows that the Capitol Police have his back, he's, you know, prepared to be the I'm, you know, showing my strength by giving you the fist to this crowd and everything. And yet when he's vulnerable just like every other Republican, he's running because he's terrified of his own base. I mean, this is it. He's yeah. like, oh, no, oh, no. You couldn't have really scripted. It's literally like the 80s. It feels like it's school ties. You know, I mean, it's like almost cliche. How many 80s movies had prep school D-bags, you know, doing anti-Semitic oh, jokes and bullying yeah. people. And then all of a sudden they get pushed to the ground and start crying. I, you know, it's it's. I, like this is this is Josh Hawley. I, like Josh Hawley is every '80s teen movie prepster bully coward That's in history, That's, right? I, I've always thought that the best way to think of Donald Trump is to think of him as Biff 
in Back to the Future. Right. I mean, he really is. He's literally the the Biff. He literally, Biff the, he literally is Biff. He they literally is Biff. Okay, so let's just talk about some of the other people that we saw, um, you know, from from Trump World who testified, because I know you have some notes on them. So I Matt, do have some notes. Matt Pottinger, uh, who was uh, the uh, Deputy National Security Advisor. You had Sarah Matthews, who was a, a Deputy Press Secretary. And uh, we had Eugene Scalia, who was the Secretary of Labor. So let's walk through them and, and let's put them through the Tim Miller, why we did it uh, an analysis. <laughs> Should uh, we do a favorite to least favorite or least favorite to yeah, favorite? I want to start with Dan Pottinger. I want to, uh, Dan, I want to start with Pottinger. Pottinger, okay. This guy sucks. Mm. I mean, this mm. guy sucks. I'm just, I'm trying hard, Charlie. I'm trying hard to be the shepherd. I'm trying hard to welcome people into into the into our embrace. This is important. I, I, I was, I went into the, I dealt with the Pond Save America bros the other day and I, and I tried to lecture them and say, Hey, you got to be a little bit kinder to, right. to converts. Okay. Like we've got, you know, big tent. The risk is so high here. The risk is so great. And so I'm doing my best. I'm going to just keep some of my thoughts about Matt Pottinger on the inside. I know that doesn't make for good po- podcast content. Um, but Man, he made it hard. He made it hard. You know, having to listen to his whole resume, having to listen to him brag about all the great things Donald Trump did. This is the thing that bothers me. You know, the Tim Murtaugh. I mean, he was in all these rooms. He's in all these rooms for five years. He was there. He He was on the deputies committee, which he reminded us several times. When Donald Trump sided with Vladimir Putin at Helsinki over our security services. Uh, he's continued to stay after that, and then he kind of praised Donald Trump's, you know, broad-shouldered leadership. I just, I, I, I mean, this guy. We all knew that he was a dangerous, w- w- loose cannon risk from from the jump, Trump, from the escalator. Yeah. Trump. Trump right. Well, yeah. And so this notion that okay, if you would have been there and said, hey, we ended up getting some good policies in spite of Trump. I, anyway, anyway, I don't know. The, I, I worry just about this. There was a lot of paper and over. What you know? What happened before January sixth? I, I wish he could have maybe just kept his testimony to what he thought about January sixth. I didn't need to know his thoughts about Donald Trump's policies on the twenty eighteen. I get why they did it, the, but because they're not, he's not trying to reach me. Okay, they're, they wanted someone like Matt Pottinger there because they want they want to reach people right. who do think that Donald Trump had a good presidency, and he had to establish his credentials as being. I, Otherwise, I am a Trumpist for those people out there, and we know who they are, the anti-anti-Trump people who are like, we need to separate the man from the policies, you know? And and so he yeah. was clearly in that world. But I I know this bothered a lot of people, and I don't know why I'm... I'm Please, the, the more, the, give me a good... Well, I want, well, I want con- to be nice. I want to well, be nice, so tell well, me, make the pitch. No, I don't want you to be nice. I just, I just, I actually thought that, you know, the fact that he was a you know, Trumpist in some ways strengthens the critique in the same way that that some of the most devastating testimony comes from people like, you know, Bill Barr. You know, I mean, you and I can both go off an entire, you know, podcast, which we have done, you know, talking about Bill Barr, you know, and, and, and what a, I'm not even going to use all the words here. Although I will say that, that you know, we have, we have now crossed a line that the major networks of American television and the Congress of the United States has allowed the word motherfucker. That was nice. I mean, I, I blame David French for this. <laughs> but so for us on this podcast to be concerned about the language. But the thing about Bill Barr is 
because he was so deep in that world, because he had gone so far when he says, yes, but this is nuts, it ought to carry some weight. So I guess if I'm willing to understand the value and the damage that Bill Barr does, then, I mean, who am I to cavil at Pottinger? Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, I just... I don't want to have to have a beer with him, but it's fine. Oh, it's, I definitely it's, don't. It's, no, no, yeah, no. thank goodness, I guess, that he was there. Um, it's, it's unclear. I guess my one other – I'll just have one other nitpick on, on Pottinger is that we're going through the timeline. And this this is this applies to Cipollone and, and a lot of these guys. And, and I, I felt like there's just this little bit of a disconnect between my emotions and theirs. I know that they're all under testimony and under oath. Yeah. But, you know, it's like Matt Pottinger is the deputy national security advisor. And so then they show all these, you know, what's happening on the internal chain of the security people. And they're like, the Capitol is being stormed. And, you know, Mike Pence's security is is asking us to tell their families they love them. And, you know, our lives are at risk and all of these horrors are happening at the Capitol. And then they go to, that's like, that's 246. You know, I'm making these numbers up. I don't remember them off the top yeah, of my head. Right, and then it's like at 247, Donald Trump tweets, you know, mm-hmm. Mike right. Pence, go to hell. And then it's like, Matt Pottinger, what were you thinking during this time? And it's like, well, I didn't think that tweet was was particularly helpful. <laughs> It's like, you didn't think it was helpful? Well, I mean, you were the deputy no. national security advisor. Should okay, you have been wait, storming wait, wait, the dining room and saying, well, like, we need to save these people? We need to, your job is to save the Capitol. What were you doing? He's like, I, you know, I rolled into the office and I saw the tweet. And I, what, what were these people doing? Why was Donald Trump allowed? Okay, he but decided, he, he was going to quit. He was going to walk out. He was going to leave. But he stayed there till he was there as two forty seven to before he quits. Doesn't he have a job to kind of like go sh- try to take a pass at the president? I didn't hear any testimony for him that was like. And then I walked into the dining room where Donald Trump had his belly out and was like rub and was eating a hamburger and was watching TV. And I was like, "Hey, motherfucker! Like, why don't we try to save the people at the Capitol? You're the president of the United States. I'm the deputy national security advisor. Shouldn't we be do? That's what I. That's what I was hoping for. Not. I wasn't hoping for like." Hmm. Didn't love that tweet. Okay. That's just so, me. That's just okay. me. That's just me. But okay. okay so, I'm happy so, that he testified. So Sarah Matthews, your notes on her. <laughs> she, she was fantastic. Why and, is, why, again, we're le- this is the difference. This is the difference. She's a deputy press secretary. I know they both have the word deputy in them, but there is a little bit of a difference between the deputy press secretary a 26-year-old whose job it is to like wrangle the press and put together media advisories. Okay, when I was 25, you know, my job was like booking people on radio, okay? Like or, or pitching blogs and trying to, you know, trying to get my boss on Charlie Sykes' show and and, yeah. and Wisconsin being told no. Um uh you know, this is this was my job when I was 25. So I this is not a person I'll that had Yeah, this, this is <laughs> this is not a person that had, you yeah. know, responsibilities to save the capital. And yet she seemed to have a sense of urgency a little bit. I, you know, she's cussing at her colleagues, saying, I don't think it looks like we're winning. She's asking her boss, can't you go back in there and tell the president he needs a stronger thing? She is, I think, speaking very clearly. I, I, did not, I didn't hear from her testimony, like a lengthy exegesis on all the great things that she thinks that Donald Trump did or her past work um, on Capitol Hill. So I, I think that there was a pretty stark contrast between the testimony and what one person's re- actions were compared to their responsibilities. So anyway, I'm gr- okay. That's fine. I'm, 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 I'm I just, I also just want to say, and this I think is really important. 
these were people that did not that should not have been in this situation. That that this is the difference for me. Matt Pottinger decided to be the deputy national security advisor. She, he was there four years. He knew what he was signing up for. These were young women who were who were assistants who showed more courage than their bosses. Kaylee is on Fox right now. Mark Meadows is, is selling his soul. There were a lot of adults all over the place. And unfortunately, the, 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 these key testimonies about the president's absolute abdication of duty was, was being put forth by 25-year-old, 26-year-old assistants. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just I give them a lot of credit, and, and I think that they have risked a lot where these assholes, Murtaugh and Wolking and, you know, you go down, Jason Miller, you can go down the list. Their bosses um, uh, have, you know, risked nothing and no one, uh, to, to use Kazir Khan's reference. Okay, Eugene Scalia. <laughs> That's almost like a comedy thing. I was like, did you remember that he was the Secretary of Labor? No, not, That's what not I at yeah, all. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm very serious. <laughs> nice job to end on Scalia because I have very, <laughs> uh, very strong views uh, on, on both polls, on Matthews and Pottinger. Scalia, that's, it's like they bring him in at the end and, you know, he's like, I was like, are you Buster from Arrested Development or were you a secretary in the cabinet of Donald Trump? I don't, I don't know. And, um, and he's like, well, I felt like I needed to stay in there, you know, after January 6th because, because we needed to make sure that the, the adults were in charge. And I'm like, does Donald Trump a- even know who you are? Like, yeah. uh, could Donald Trump pick you out of a lineup if we put you and like three other bald Italians in a lineup, could Donald Trump pick out who his Secretary of Labor was? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, clearly, Pete Hegseth had more chance of getting Donald Trump to behave than Gene Scalia. And I don't. You know, I guess he's like, well, we we might want to do the Twenty Fifth Amendment. It's like, well, did did you? Did they did they try to do it? I, and then when they didn't, did you quit? Did you quit then? No. So you're just testifying now under oath that you. Okay, I mean, I guess fine that we had Eugene in there. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that it mattered one way or the other. No, it, it didn't matter. Very, it, did. it felt very veepish. You know, he's like walking into the room, and it's like, good thing Eugene's here. You know, I wrote yeah. a memo. I wrote a memo to Don and tr- told him to be nicer. Didn't didn't land. And we should have a meeting of the cabinet, which, <laughs> which, which I'm sure would 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 really sober uh, Donald Trump up. Okay, so Tim, I have mixed takes on. On, on on Mike Pence. Let me just tell you. So um, I, I think that, again, some of this is not new, but his forceful sort of seizing the reins of the moment of, you know, calling the military and telling them, you know, that they had to clear the Capitol um, felt like he was being presidential. I mean, he had no actual legal authority to do what he was doing. But since Donald Trump completely abdicated his his responsibilities, Mike Pence stepped up and I thought, OK, good for Mike Pence. This is great. The flip side of this is that as you hear more about how much in danger he was and his his bodyguard detail and perhaps members of his family i mean this was certainly one of the emotional you know gut punches of of the evening was listening to you know some of the the chatter going back and forth although could i just parenthetically mention um it would certainly be good now to see the text messages of the secret service agents that have been disappeared especially as we're now hearing that they were so frightened that many of them were reaching out to their loved ones. There was this terror. Given all of that, Mike Pence's failure to show up and testify before this committee, his failure to be more outspoken about this, I think feels a lot worse. Yeah. Okay. It's one thing for your life to be in danger, and you did some good things that day, but you know the people around you 
who were sworn to defend you were put in great danger of their lives. You know, if this is not a moment for you to draw this really bright red line and sit down there, do what 26-year-old Cassidy Hutchinson was willing to do. Or Sarah Matthews, these young women were willing to tell their story and you are not. So I guess, you know, I felt better about Pence in one way and worse in this other respect. What do you? Yeah, you you can do both, right? And you can. He showed courage and determination that day, and that's that's true. He also is is now continuing to enable Donald Trump and do all the things that got us there. Uh, You know, humans contain multitudes, right? And and so does so does Mike Pence. And so, yeah, he should testify. I've said this several times, and um, I don't understand why he's not testifying. To I I guess I do. It's because he thinks that he's going to win a primary or whatever, which is which is preposterous. So. I also think that just this notion, he didn't have the authority to to do what he did that day also, right? And and should not this call for some some reflection? Isn't he obligated to to, you know, testify and be a participant in a review over what okay, now what happens when the president of the United States is on the side of domestic terrorists? Like does the vice president have control? Should, didn't they have to actually did I mean technically speaking for the now, I'm not saying that I wanted no. this to happen, but like technically speaking, for the for Mike Pence to be able to give orders to Mark Milley, didn't they need to actually call a cabinet meeting and 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 do the 25th Amendment or do yeah. right? I, I don't I don't know either. I, like I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I I think so. Um, so uh, you know that's all part of this too, like part of a, a review of what happens when you have um, a madman uh, in in the in the White House. So he hasn't. I just want to add one other person on this. Um, I, I, the the committee has been so meticulous that I understand why the January 6th committee wouldn't want to do this. But I'd be interested to hear, maybe the next time you talk to Kinzinger, um, why? Has, is there any consideration of calling McCarthy and yeah. just and just asking him to, to to relay what happened on that phone call with Donald Trump? I don't he doesn't have executive privilege, to my knowledge, right? Um so, yeah. I, you know, I mean, I guess he could call it and we can then, I guess we go into courts forever and ever. But, but you know, that this is, again, another person. Seems like Kevin McCarthy has some pretty key evidence here because when Donald Trump was, you know, channel surfing between Newsmax and, and Fox, uh, McCarthy is one of the few people that we know for sure he talked to. Well, and, and, and McCarthy is described as being scared, which I thought yeah. was. Uh, and, and he called Jared Kushner, who for some unaccountable reason was showering in the middle of the day and, take, you know, gets out of the shower. So we have the mental image of, Jared Kushner, we with a towel around him, you know, talking yeah, to Kevin McCarthy. Afternoon shower, not much to do. He's like, oh, uh, hey, look at this. The Capitol's being stormed. Maybe I should, the interns might need to get back into the into the White House. Well, I'm I am now speculating, and I'm out over my skis on all of this. I'm sure I can come up with a couple of more cliches here, but my my guess is the reason they're not going harder after McCarthy is uh, because they know that there's a chance that he will be speaker, and there's going to be this massive blowback retaliation, but. There also seems to be the kind of all out of fucks to give uh, attitude when it comes to dragging McCarthy, dragging Josh Hawley. So we'll we'll see. But I, sure. I look, I think they should have. And I, I guess I am increasingly frustrated at this sort of notion that, well, if somebody is in Congress um, or they are a former president or a presidential candidate, that somehow we need to have a different <laughs> set of rules for um, the way we're going to apply the law. Well, screw that. I mean, honestly, you know, that. This whole you know thing about, well, if Donald Trump runs for president again, this makes an indictment less likely. Okay, wait, why? I mean, I understand all the reasons, but you know, think through what you're saying here. 
You have Joe Schmoes that are going to jail or being indicted uh, for all sorts of things, violation, technical violations of the law. Um, if you be, you know, if you uh, you have you know hundreds of people who are going to jail or having their livelihoods destroyed because they follow Donald Trump's uh, call to invade the Capitol. And yet somehow, because Donald Trump wants to seize power again, that we need to be very careful about applying the law to him. I mean, that's really bullshit. And I, I, I'm, I'm becoming more and more impatient at this idea that the president or former president or candidate for president somehow is in a special legal category that does not include you and me and any other American that is breaking the law. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not cutting, I'm not cutting the DOJ any slack on this. Where are, you, where are you at on this? Yeah, again, I'm not. This is not my area of expertise. Like what DOJ norm should be here? I, you know, I defer to Wittis, who is an expert on this, has been more patient with them, and and so I'm open to the fact that that is right. But like I said, you were watching this last night, and it's you know, we're charging. Uh, the the phrase that stuck out to me was. You know that woman who's on the walkie-talkie uh, inside the Capitol, and and I think it was Kinzinger who says that you know she's being charged with seditious conspiracy. It's like, how? Okay, so how is how is Donald right. Trump not not guilty? Well, if that woman is guilty, I guess she she was in the Capitol and he wasn't, but but surely he was more central to the seditious conspiracy than, you know, the woman on the walkie-talkie. You don't understand. Donald Trump is, you know, I mean, he's on television. He's famous and he has uh, gold-plated <laughs> toilets. So, I mean, obviously, we need to have a different standard. Okay, I'm, I'm being cynical here. Yeah. So, speaking of your next book, Worse Than worse than Whores, um, <laughs> the, you, you, have a, you have a great Not My Party about MBS and uh, the uh, shambolic trip by the president uh, to the Mideast. Uh, you were not a fan of uh, the fist bump no. or, or the, the fecklessness of that. And, and of course, we're seeing all of these professional golfers going, okay, so how much did you say it would take for me to overlook the bone saw thing? Um, and, and, and MBS continues to just play them so, I mean, it's so easy in some of these cases. So tell me about... Joe Biden, MBS, PGA. Yeah, I mean, if there's any lesson from everything that I've been writing about for the past month and telling that it's uh, it's that we have to look at the dangers of enabling of everyone who has a role in enabling dangerous people. Right. Yeah. And at times, yeah. all of us are called to be the turd in the punch bowl. <laughs> this is one of, the, one of the central messages that I'm, I'm trying to offer you know, when it comes to Donald Trump, but it, call, it comes to other things. Like sometimes it, everybody in the chain has a responsibility to say, nope, not through me. This isn't happening through me. And on MBS, we're seeing the exact same thing that, that we're talking about, about the Republican consultant culture, where everyone sort of justifies it and rationalizes it and says, well, you know, these guys are doing it and this guy's doing it and, and we need the oil. We need it. And we need, you know, his, his geopolitical role in, in challenging Iran. I, I, I don't know. I get all that. We talked about this once a couple months ago, Charlie, and you're like, maybe if there's a real politique element to some of this and you know, there are dangers in the region and sometimes you have to deal with bad people, but that's, that's not what is happening in a lot of these cases. I mean, Jared Kushner taking a $2 billion bribe from him is not real politique. That is that is a that is a bribe. Okay, uh, golfers, uh, Hollywood, 
soccer, you know, the Premier League, you know, everybody, you know, letting him sports wash, letting him, um, uh, uh, letting him clean his money through Hollywood. Get, you know, Lindsay Lohan flying there. Like every one of these people is a person in this chain that is giving him more power, more influence, and and they also are are. You know, and one giving one more little piece of evidence for everyone else in the chain to say, well, I guess we can just go along with this, right? I mean, it's not that big. I'm just one. I'm just one golfer. You know, I'm just one golfer. Why is it my responsibility to 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 say no to this? And eventually, you get to a point where this becomes a very powerful man that can act with impunity, and he is. Uh, he's he you know killed is Khashoggi, but it's not just that. He is. There are American citizens that are still held hostage there. Um, this was another. A failure of Biden's that uh, I didn't really get into enough in the episode, but you do the fist bump and, you know, everybody's like, well, you got to do this because the geopolitical concerns about the region because of gas prices. And it's like, OK, well, can we can we get a concession for why is it Biden that's making all of the concessions, uh, you know, from from the PR standpoint to MBS? Like, can we at least get a hostage out of the fist bump? Okay, well, I, I still wouldn't like that. But like, what are we get? I, can we get something of substance to just demonstrate? Uh, but, you know, MBS is just getting away oiling. with all this. So I, I don't want to pile on anymore, but. Please do. No, this seems to be a legitimate question. So Joe Biden goes over there and does the fist bump. And I know, okay, maybe it's overhyped, whatever. But what did we get from that? What was the success? Did we we get the extra oil? Did I miss that? I mean, look, oil prices are going down and gas prices are going down. But it, it felt like we gave MBS a lot. He then urinated on our president from a great height. And what did we get? Yeah, and the answer that I get that will get pushed back in the comments and the emails about yeah. this I get from from the defense is well, you don't really know, right? We we don't know what oh, kind okay. of they're they're doing behind the scenes, and you know you got to keep them on on side on various things. And I, okay, I I guess, but to me this just seems like a bunch of diplomatic bullshit and like and a lot of diplomatic self rationalizations because you know they felt like you know that that they were they were concerned about uh about what was happening you know with the with 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 oil and and the domestic political concerns i you have to if you know you don't have to tell us all the state secrets to come out and say actually you know there there were some other other diplomatic gains that we got out of this right and and this is part of it the the pr element you don't think that mbs is is trading on this back home Right, like that he's not trade, you know, to 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 retain power. It wasn't exactly clear that MBS was going to take power. This is, you know, talking about the Saudi domestic politics. Like there was a period of time where there was a kerfuffle between him and MBN, Mohammed um, bin Naif. And there's some reason to believe that obviously MBN is not going to be a perfect person, uh, not a classical liberal leader of Saudi, but that he is, you know, a little less psychopathic than MBS. And so MBS uses all of this stuff in his in his domestic politics. You know, the fact that, oh, well, look, I got the Trumps wrapped around my little finger. I got Biden giving me this fist bump for a PR thing. You know, we're going to America to have a golf tournament at the former president's golf tournament. The second most famous golf player, golfer in the world, Phil Mickelson, is is, is you know going to be you know, sh- you know shining my golden bone saw that we hand out to the winner. Oh, and so, right? I mean, he he uses all of that at home. So the PR, you know, maybe Jeez. there's some behind the scenes diplomatics about this, but the PR also matters. What was the PR gain that we got? What was the thing that that made MBS look a little small? Nothing. MBS looked big, 
Biden looks small. MBS looked big. Jared Kushner looks like a like look like looks like a little runt begging for begging for cash. You know that <sighs> this is it. happening over and over again, and and somebody needs to say no. Fuck this guy. Actually, yeah, yeah, you know this is not. You know may, maybe we need to come up with new solutions. Um, you know, for you for instead instead of being completely just dependent on a a psychopathic Middle Eastern oil despot. One one man's idea. One man's idea. Okay, so uh, one one last uh, footnote to our discussion er- earlier. Yes. And, and and again, now, now bear with me. These people think I'm going to do this gratuitously, but I'll bear with you. It was kind of remarkable, you know, sitting here in Wisconsin and in, and watching uh, this congressional hearing and the, the news networks broadcasting um, the word motherfucker last night. Because you know why? Because this is this week is the fiftieth anniversary of George Carlin being arrested for using the seven words at Milwaukee's Summerfest. It was right here. 50 years ago, he was arrested in 1972 for obscenity. And this became this huge issue for free speech, you know, and he began referring to the taboo words as the Milwaukee Seven. Eventually, like, you know, Milwaukee goes, we wouldn't want to humiliate ourselves. <laughs> um, you know, we, we're going to drop the case. But that happened right here. And on the 50th anniversary of George Carlin's arrest for using the seven words, all of America gets to hear motherfucker <laughs> on all the major networks in the Congress of the United States. So... Slow, I, love it. I didn't know that. Slow cap for that little tidbit of local and national history. Tim Miller, thanks for coming on. Keep going with the book. Congratulations. Our New York Times bestselling author, Tim Miller. Always good to have you on Fridays. Charlie, appreciate you. See you next week. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Seitz on Monday. Of course, will be Amanda Carpenter and Will Salatan. I will be back on Tuesday and we'll do this all over again.